Greetings, my friend, and welcome to Beyond Curious, conversations with brave adventurers like yourself that are taking voyages into the unknown to satisfy their curiosity, fulfill their purpose, and bring their ideas to life. I'm Brandon Fong, and I so appreciate you for being here, and I'm beyond excited to introduce you to today's guest, Nir Eyal. Making Time for Traction acknowledges that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. That, of course, was Nir dropping a value bomb, and he drops so many value bombs on this episode. That being one of them, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So good, and you'll find out really what that means, obviously, in this episode. As always, I would love for you to look out for three specific things, but before we get there, let me tell you about Nir if you don't know him already. Nir AL writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. Nir previously taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. Nir co-founded and sold two tech companies since 2003 and was dubbed by the MIT Technology Review as the profit of habit forming technology. Bloomberg Business Week wrote, Nir Eyal is the habits guy. Want to understand how to get app users to come back again and again? Then Nir is your man. He is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Indistractable received critical acclaim, winning the Outstanding Works of Literature Award, as well as being named as one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon, and was a was one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. The Globe and Mail called Indistractable the best business book of 2019. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Nir's writing has been featured in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today. Guys, there is so much to look forward to in this episode, but as always, I would love for you to look out for three specific things. We kick things off strong with a story that has to do with a jar and what that jar has to do with how Nir spends quality time with his daughter while being fully present. So check that out right in the beginning. Number two, why using to-do list incorrectly may be hurting you, why motivation is not driven by reward and punishment, and why you need to control inputs, not outcomes. That was kind of cheating because I squeezed three things in that number two bullet, but those are all so good and I didn't want to miss any of them. So look out for any of those. And number three, my favorite, probably most implementable thing is the 10 minute rule and how you can leverage that to stop getting distracted. There is so much gold in this episode and it's been really amazing because I've been following Nier's work for the past nine years. It's kind of crazy to say that. I was a fan of his uh, when he wrote his original book, Hooked. I read it then, implemented a bunch of stuff, and then I actually was introduced to his work with Indistractable when the book initially came out when I was working with Jonathan Levy at Superhuman Academy. So I actually started implementing near stuff years ago and it has made a dramatic impact in my life and I'm super grateful to have him on the show uh, to be able to introduce some of these concepts to you if you're not familiar with him. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my friend Nir Eyal. All right, greetings, friends. So normally, what I would say at the very beginning of an episode, I would say, Nir, welcome to the show. I'll get to that in just a bit. But before I do that, I would love to tell a quick story about Nir and why I appreciate him and his work so much. So that will kick us off for, for starting into it. So I actually first got introduced to Nir because of his book, 
hooked. And uh, even though I learned so much about habit uh, building products, one of the things that stuck out to me that actually in many ways changed my life was this study that you referenced uh, about a, a French study that increased the amount of people money, pe the amount of money that people gave on a bus fare. So that's actually become really prominent. That's when I became hooked with Nears World. Then he came out with this book <laughs> called Indistractable. And because of that book, I literally haven't had notifications on my phone for over four years, which is kind of crazy to say at this point. I, I have nice. a significantly less distracting phone environment. I have to check email on Chrome because I, I don't allow myself to have the, the fancy UI of the of the Gmail app. And especially with AI becoming more and more prominent, learning how to become indistractable is truly a superpower. So with that said, I think you guys can tell why I'm really excited to have Nir here. I'm picking up even more than I did the original time when I went through indistractable. So with that said, Nir, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, man. <laughs> wow, I can't uh, have asked for a better introduction because there's nothing, I mean, this is like catnip for an author to hear how somebody <laughs> used their work and uh, apply applied it to their lives and found that they've benefited from it. So thank you. That's a huge honor. I really appreciate it. you made my day. You made my week. Absolutely. Well, let's let's continue giving that gift. I know you've been hard at work promoting Indistractable despite the fact that it came out with a bang. And so I'm really excited to introduce these concepts to even more people because it really, really is a superpower. And what I would love to do to kick things off is I would actually love to start with two stories from your book that involve your daughter, Jasmine. And um, I know that part of your relationship with her is being fully present and something that you've implemented has to do with a jar. Um, so I would love for you to share about what that is and, and, and how that's impacted you and your relationship with her. Sure. So one of the tactics in the book is around turning your values into time. And one of my values is to make sure that I'm an av available father. And so to live out that value, we have time on our schedules, both my daughter and I, to be with each other. Uh, and this uh, th this goes against the grain for a lot of people. Uh, planning time is something that they have difficulty doing because they think, oh, I want to be spontaneous, right? I want to, what if I want to be creative? What if the muse strikes? You know what? I need, I can't plan my time. And it's a huge resistance that some people have, uh, despite the fact that they're struggling with distraction and, and, uh, distraction is a killer, right? The reason I wrote the book is because I felt like I was getting distracted. I was with my daughter and yet I would succumb to looking at, you know, something online or, uh, I would say I was going to exercise, but I wouldn't. I'd said I was going to work on a big project and yet somehow I would procrastinate and delay. And fundamentally, I wasn't living the life I knew I was capable of living. And so that's really why I dove into this science of distraction, because I didn't want to look back at my life with regret. I wanted to say that I lived my life the way I wanted to, not the way that you know my distractions guided me towards one thing or another. So what we've done to overcome this problem uh, of, of, of feeling like we're over planning and yet getting the most out of our time together, we have what we call the fun jar. And the fun jar is part of what we call planned spontaneity, planned spontaneity. It sounds like an oxymoron. How can you plan spontaneity? Well, the reason we do this is that every week I have time with my daughter, just some daddy-daughter time. And if we don't know what we're going to do, we go to the fun jar and we pick out a little piece of paper and we do whatever's on the piece of paper. And so what that's done for us, you say, well, why do you have to plan that? Well, here's the thing. If you don't plan that time for your most important relationships, you know what you're going to do. You're going to do something else, right? Either that time, oh, you know, I'll, I'll get to it eventually. I'll spend time with my daughter someday or I'll have more time with my spouse. We'll get there uh, at some point and then it never happens. So not only do we schedule that time, the reason I schedule that time, even though we don't know what we're going to do, is that I know what I will not be doing. I will not be on my phone. I will not be checking social media. I will not be making, you know, work emails, whatever the case might be. I'm going to be with someone I love very much. 
I love that so much. And you planted so many seeds. So I, I really want to get into turning your values into time and time boxing and all that kind of stuff. But I, I want to stick here a little bit because I think this is really special because you also credit your daughter in in the acknowledgments of your book at the end. And you start with a story about how she was part of the inspiration for why you wanted to become more indistractable and that you actually kind of wrote the book for yourself in many ways so that you could be more present. So now that people have gotten a, a little bit of a uh, idea about the life that you have now with your jar, it wasn't always that way. And you, you start by sharing a story in the beginning too, about you doing an activity book with Jasmine and uh, you, you shared and ended up missing out on something as a result of that. So maybe yeah. we can contrast those two stories. <laughs> sure. So I had written my first book and it became a bestseller hooked, which is about how to build habit forming products. So this is where I steal the secrets of Silicon Valley companies like Facebook and Amazon and YouTube and provided them for product makers. So that book is really written for companies who want to build habit habit-forming products. So for example, Duolingo, I've worked with them to help make their apps more habit-forming so people can build the habit of learning a new language. Or Kahoot gets students hooked to learning. Uh, or Fitbod gets people hooked to exercise. So I didn't write this the, the book hooked for the video game companies or the social networks. I stole their secrets. They already know these techniques. They've known them for years. <laughs> I wanted to democratize these techniques for the rest of us, for all the entrepreneurs out there building products and services that would really help people if they actually use the product. So uh, the book did really well, it became a bestseller, it sold over half a million copies, and I started getting busier and busier. And what I was finding is that the thing that made me successful was taking me away from the things that I loved. Not only was it making it harder to write, I found that I had less time to really focus and sit down and do new writing, new research. I was also getting distracted when I was with the people I love most. So I, I remember this one afternoon that uh, my daughter and I had this just daddy-daughter time, some quality time together. I remember we had this activity book of things that dads and daughters could do together. And one of the activities in this book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what we, she said. Because in that moment, for whatever reason, I just thought there was, a, was just one thing I had to do on my phone real quick. And by the time I looked up from my device, she was gone because I was sending her a very clear message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was, and she went to go play with some toy outside. And so if you ask me today what superpower I would most want, I would tell you it's the power to be indistractable, because there is no area of your life, whether it's your physical health, your mental well-being, your success at work, your family relationships, all of these things, all of them require you to be able to control your attention. This is truly how we choose our life. So this is the macro scale of the century. I mean, think about it, right? If you, there's so much information out there. We, we, if, if you wanna learn how to do something, just Google it, ask ChatGPT, go buy a book. All these solutions are right here. They're all out there. But if we can't sustain our attention long enough to digest these solutions and apply them to our lives, what are we doing? We're spinning our wheels. So the macro scale of the century, will be the power to be indistractable. And when I started to study, okay, how do I do this? How do I manage distraction? How do I do what I say I'm going to do? All I found were a bunch of books that tell me technology is rotting my brain, that it's uh, stealing my attention. That's bullshit. That's not true. It's not, nobody's stealing your attention. We're giving it away. And so what I truly wanted to figure out was a, an approach that doesn't blame our circumstances. We can't time travel to some magical period before distraction. In fact, we know that Plato, the Greek philosopher, was complaining about distraction 2,500 years before the internet. So it can't be our devices. And I hate these authors that have these stupid, simplistic solutions. It's all social media's fault. It's all technology's fault. I am calling BS. Because if you look deeper into the research, 
it's got almost nothing to do with technology. That's just the manifestation of the problem. That's just the symptom. The real problem goes much, much deeper, but it's much more empowering that it turns out if you look at the psychology of distraction, there is so much, there's no reason for us to continue to procrastinate and distract ourselves and to uh, be pulled away from what we really want in life. We, with the access of these tools that took me five years to research, mostly because I kept getting distracted until I learned these <laughs> techniques in my own life. But today, there's no facet of my life that isn't improved. I'm in the best uh, physical shape. I'm 45 years old, and I, I have a four-pack for the first time in my life. I used to be clinically obese, not because I have good genes or because I'm you know, athletic in any way. I just exercise and eat right because I say I will. I spend more quality time with my family than ever before because I say I will. I do my work, the stuff that moves my career forward, because I say I will. So becoming indistractable, I can't think of a more important skill. And so I wrote this book for me. And thankfully, a lot of people have benefited from it as well as you have. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm super excited to dive into all of these concepts. And I'll also create an open loop at the end. Maybe at the end we can, because I, I love finding at the end of the book, you actually asked your daughter later what her superpower was and you found out. So we'll, we'll keep that to the end. You have to listen to figure out what her superpower is. But let's dive into some of the foundational concepts of Indistractable. I think a great place to start would be, you bust this huge myth inside of the book about how motivation, people typically think about it as being driven by reward and punishment, but that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. So we'd love for you to kind of right. share what the core of motivation actually is. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, when you ask people, why do you get distracted? I think there's a more important question, uh, which, by the way, is a fascinating question. You know, the same question that I mentioned that Plato talked about 2,500 years ago. Uh, he, he was contemplating, why is it if I know what to do, why don't I just do it? I, I think that's an endlessly interesting question. And so that's really the question that, that drives the whole book. Uh, and so uh, Plato called it akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest. But the right question to ask, I think, goes a little bit deeper. It's not just why do we get distracted? It's why do we do anything and everything? What is the seat of human motivation? And most people have been told some version of, oh, motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. We've all heard this metaphor. Uh, Jonathan Bentham said something like this. Uh, Sigmund Freud called it the pleasure principle. We've heard this carrots and stick philosophy before. Turns out, neurologically, we know this is not true that the brain does not operate with carrots and sticks. It's a very simplistic model. If you actually look at what's happening in the brain is that everything that we do, all human motivation is driven by one thing and one thing only. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. So it's almost like, you know, that scene in the matrix where Neo walks into the room and there's that boy who has the, the spoon and the spoon starts there is bending. No spoon. <laughs> there is no spoon, right? Here's the, there is no spoon moment. The carrot is the stick, mm. okay? The carrot is the stick. What does that mean? Even when we desire pleasure, even when we want something in the pursuit of feeling good, the way the brain gets us to pursue that thing is by making us feel bad. Mm. The carrot is the stick. Wanting, craving, lusting, desire, these things are all psychologically destabilizing. So what that means essentially, if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. What that must therefore mean is that time management is pain management. Money management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. Now, some people look at this and they get depressed. Oh my God, that's so, that's so sad. That's so depressing. No, no, no. This is incredibly liberating because all this means is that what's keeping you from your goals, from your 
best existence from living a life full of joy rather than regret is feelings. That's it. That's it. (laughs) Feelings, right? If you think about it, what's the number one reason people don't accomplish their goals? The number one reason is because they quit. Well, why do we quit? We quit because we don't feel like it. I know I need to go to the gym. I don't feel like it. I know I'm not supposed to eat that unhealthy food, but I want it. I know I need to work on that big project, but I don't want to right now. It's just feelings, right? And so this was, a to me, an incredibly important lesson. And it, 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 it sparks the very first step that we need to become indistractable, which is to master internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Most people have heard of external triggers. External triggers are things in our outside environment that lead us towards distraction, the pings, the dings, the rings. But did you know that studies find that external triggers only account for 10% of our distractions? 10% of our distractions come from ping, dings, and rings. But of course, that's all we blame. Oh, it's my phone. It's Facebook. It's the news. It's Twitter. It's my kids. It's my boss. It's all this stuff outside of us. But that's only 10% of the time we get distracted. 90% of the time, we get distracted because of a negative emotional state. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety. If we can learn to master those internal triggers, this is the first step to becoming indistractable. And if we don't, they will master us. I love that. So let's revisit. We'll make sure we go through some of those internal triggers because that's super important. But before we get there, let's give everyone maybe like a 30,000 foot view because you outlay this model that's incredibly powerful inside of the book that kind of explains the whole thing. So we'd love for you to kind of go through the the indistractable model at a high level, and then we'll dive into some of the specific ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. So think of a kind of a two arrows pointing to the right and to the left. The right arrow represents distraction and the opposite of distraction. What's the opposite of distraction? Most people think the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not exactly right. If you look at the etymology of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Of course it is, traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters. A-C-T-I-O-N spells action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us. It is an action we ourselves take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do. Things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, away from your goals, away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So so this is much more important than just semantics because I would argue that the difference between traction and distraction is one word. And that one word is intent. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing things like playing video games or going on YouTube or social media. These things are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. And stop listening to the mainstream media who is in direct competition, by the way, for (laughs) your eyeballs, right? When they tell you, oh, social media is melting your brain and they promote authors and uh, gurus who tell you to stop using technology. It's because they want your attention, right? They don't want you going to TikTok or Facebook. They want you to spend time with their media products, complete hypocrites. But there's nothing wrong with these things. If you want to play video games, if you want to go online, there's nothing wrong with it. Stop moralizing it. Rather, do it on your schedule, not someone else's, according to your values, not the tech companies. So if you plan time to go on social media or to take a walk, uh, paint, meditate, pray, I don't care. Whatever you want to do is fine as long as you do it with intent. Then it's an act of traction. Conversely, 
Just because something's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. I, for years, I would sit down at my desk and I would say, okay, now I'm going to get to work on this big project. Uh, nothing's going to get in my way. Here I go. I'm going to get started. I'm not going to get distracted. But first, let me check some email, right? <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Absolutely. <laughs> you Every day. All the <laughs> time. Not and recently, I, but yes. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. So me too all the time before I learned this tech, because what I realized is that if it's not what I plan to do, even if it's a work-related task, by definition, it's a distraction. So if I didn't plan to do email at that moment, it's a distraction, right? So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. I would argue that's the worst kind. That's the most dangerous form of distraction is the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So now we've got traction. We've got distraction, and now we can plug in what we talked about earlier around external triggers and internal triggers, right? Those are Think of those as two arrows pointing to the middle of, of those arrows. So two pointing in, two pointing out. You've got internal triggers, uh, traction, external triggers, and distraction. And now we can look at these four points of this indistractable model where we can work our way through these four points like a compass. So cool. Well, you before I ask you that question, you let us right to the internal triggers, which I think to me is probably one of the most profound components of your book is because while well, many people can teach about the hacks, which are going to change, obviously, as platforms evolve, as AI becomes more prominent, right? But like the internal triggers are really what we have to learn how to manage. And I'm, I'm excited to kind of re-implement this. So I'm going to attempt to do something uh, bold here, Nir. I'm going to tie together insights from both Hooked and uh, Indistractable because I, I I think I'd be doing it a disservice if I didn't share this, this study that you share here. So uh, for a little bit of context, everyone, Nir has a podcast called Near and Far. I was listening to it. He's got a co-host, Nick Gray, that reads his article and then Nir comments. It's a really cool format. I've never seen it done before. Um, so what I thought I would do, Nir, is I would love to read a part of Hooked, have you comment on it. And in my mind, this goes to actually um, what we were just talking about for internal triggers. So we'll see if we can we can marry all those things together. Does that work for you? <laughs> that sounds great. Let's do it. I love all right. it. All right. Sweet. So uh, this is my favorite part of Hooked. I cite this. I cite near all the time. So I just wanted to make sure we got this in. But uh, as part of a French study, researchers wanted to know if they could influence how much money people handed to a total stranger asking for bus fare by using just a few specially encoded words. They discovered a technique so simple and effective, it doubled the amount people gave. The turn of phrase has not only proven to increase how much bus fare people give, but has also been effective in boosting charitable donations and participation in voluntary surveys. In fact, a recent meta-analysis of 42 studies involving over 22,000 participants concluded that these few words placed at the end of a request are a highly effective way to gain compliance, doubling the likelihood of people saying yes. The magic words the researchers discovered, the phrase, but you are free to accept or refuse. And then I'll skip a for forward a little bit here. It just talks about how we are likely to be persuaded when our ability, ability to choose is reaffirmed. And by saying you are free, it disarms our instinctive rejection of being told what to do. So I've noticed this as like a common thread in lots of your work, Neil, er, near, and, and I thought it'd be cool for you to maybe just kind of comment on, on this particular component of, of, um, what it takes to influence positively the people that we are creating either ourselves or other people. 
Yeah, th this is one of my favorite concepts in psychology, uh, and it's it's uh, it's been replicated many many times. So there's a lot of you know pop psychology out there where uh, there's a lot of what, what's called p hacking, where uh, you know you run a study and then you find the one weird result and then that gets a lot of press. That is not the case here. You know, a lot of what I I cite are, are meta studies where you see studies of studies, and this is a very repeatable effect, and it makes common sense in that what it, what the phenomenon is is about. Uh, it's called psychological reactance and psychological reactance says that when our autonomy is threatened, when we feel like we are being told what to do, our natural instinct is to rebel. So in this study, when someone was asking for, for money, uh, if you said, you know, please, please give me money, you got X level of donation. But if you said, please give me money, but of course you're free to refuse, what that did was allow, was disarm psychological reactance. And so this is a really important concept. And this is why uh, the, the, the abstinence army out there around saying, you know, you, you stop using technology or uh, it's about as effective as in the 1980s. I remember I, we had these, you know, dare to keep kids off drugs. Drugs are bad. Stop using drugs, kids. It's the same reason that that it doesn't yeah, work with the, the eggs in the frying pan. <laughs> this is your brain on drugs. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because absence, here's what. So some things, uh, absence is the right approach for certain things. For example, one of the best recovery techniques for, for someone who's using hard drugs is to get away from the environment where there are those triggers to use, right? So getting a new friend group, perhaps. I mean, that's part of the reason it's so hard to stop a, a dangerous addiction because you have to remove a lot of those triggers. But for, for most things uh, that distract us, it's very hard to remove those triggers. You know, I used to be clinically obese. You can't stop eating, right? Food is part of our life. And with technology, it's really stupid to tell people stop using technology, right? Well, the thing's stupid. That's the kind of advice that a tenured professor would give. I'm going to get fired if I don't use my email and social media, right? It's ridiculous. And we shouldn't need to. Um, and so the idea here is not about, you know, breaking up with your cell phone and, you know, saying these social media companies and the tech companies, it's all their fault. We should stop using their tools. But what that does when, when you do that, it actually makes you less likely to put this stuff in its place because you have this extreme notion of black or white, yes or no, good and evil. And that elicits psychological reactance that when we go for straight abstinence, what that causes is this exact desire that we're talking about here. It, 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 we, there's no component of you're free to choose. And so when we can add that component to our lives, for example, when it comes to distraction, one of the most effective techniques to master those internal triggers that we talked about earlier is called the 10 minute rule. And the 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction, but not right now in 10 minutes. And you'd be amazed how many people, you know, I've been doing this work for over a decade. People tell me, oh my God, technology is so addictive. Uh, my kids are using it all the time. I just can't do, I can't pay attention. I can't stop. I, maybe I have this disease or ADHD or that or that. And I say, okay, let's, let's take a little bet here. Okay. I want you to do this task for just 10 minutes. What's the thing that's distracting that you're getting distracted from? Oh, whatever that task is. I want you to do it for, for just 10 minutes. Can you do it for 10 minutes? Yeah, probably I can do it for 10 minutes. If 10 minutes is too much, no problem. Let's do it for less time. But okay, 10 minutes. You can do just about anything for 10 minutes. And what that says is that in 10 minutes, you can give into that distraction, right? No problem. In just 10 minutes, you can give into any distraction. What you find is that, hey, it's not that hard. <laughs> you can actually do it for 10 minutes. But what you're letting yourself do is to say, hey, if I can do it for 10 minutes, well, maybe it's not hijacking my brain. Maybe I'm not addicted. Maybe I can start growing that muscle to say, hey, maybe the 10 minute rule can become the 12. 
12-minute rule can become the 15-minute rule. But you're not saying, no, I'm not going to use it ever again. You're saying, hey, I choose to not use it for just 10 minutes. And then after those 10 minutes, I can get back to uh, to that thing. That's fine. But what you find is you're, you're increasing agency rather than decreasing agency by disarming the psychological reactants. I'm going to bold underline highlight and encourage everyone to just skip back a few seconds and re-listen to that because this is the, this is near you read, you read my mind. Cause that, that was that to me, that was a correlation I made between that study and the 10 minute rule, because I started doing this. I read this in Indistractable. I didn't do it initially, but now I started doing it again since I restarted implementing this. And now I have like a pad of paper next to my desk and something as simple as like, I had a message I wanted to send to my EA the other day. It's like I could have stopped and I could have paused what I was doing. I thought about it. I could have opened up Slack and sent it to him. But that's something so small that like it it is a distraction from what I was doing, even though I thought about it. So just the simple thing of like, even, like writing it down and giving yourself permission to do that thing later is so huge. And I did find that my distraction list, like you said, lots of it is just kind of like it melts away if you give yourself a little bit more time and space behind that. So would highly encourage that. And that's something I'm really excited to make sure that I'm continuing to, to implement. Uh, another thing that I think is, uh, you know, related to the section that is super amazing is you have this distraction tracker that you encourage everyone to print out. And by the way, obviously would highly encourage everybody to go grab a copy of the book, but I will also say Nier's got some of the best bonuses around for the book. And so he's got that at nearandfar.com slash indistractable. We'll have that linked up in the show notes, but I would love for you to talk about the, the distraction tracker too, because you kind of get into that emotional component of it as well, which I think is important yeah. to understand. Again, that root cause is actually what's causing us to be go off track to begin with. Absolutely. Yeah. So the number one cause of distraction is an emotion regulation problem that we simply haven't learned the tools to deal with that discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. So one of the best things you can do is to simply note that sensation. So I keep a, a little post-it note with me at all times with uh, at my desk. And whenever I feel that urge towards distraction, whether I'm writing or whether I'm, you know, whatever it is I'm doing, if I need that focus work time and I find that I feel that distraction, sometimes if it's just writing down what I'm feeling, feeling bored, feeling stressed, feeling anxious, feeling uncertain. Just writing it down is an amazing way to start getting control and agency over it rather than doing the task, right? That when I, so so this is, this is, this will blow some people away. I make time to worry. There is time in my schedule to worry, right? Because what I was finding was I would, I, I would start writing. And by the way, writing is really hard. <laughs> I've been doing it for over a decade now as a professional author and speaker. And it's hard work. It never becomes a habit. I don't know how to turn writing into a habit. That's ridiculous, right? It's, <laughs> it's hard freaking work. And, but I have to do it. I want to do it. I really enjoy doing it, but sometimes it's hard to get started or it's, you know, it's not going so well or something's difficult. And all I want to do is escape. Well, by just simply writing down that sensation, you start getting agency over it by realizing, hey, there's only three reasons for any distraction. Three reasons. That's it. I don't care what the distraction is. Anything that takes you away from what you plan to do, it can only be from three things. Either it's an internal trigger. Okay. So that's why that distraction tracker is so powerful because you write down what was that distraction. You don't act on it right now. Okay. You just write down what that distraction was. If it's an internal trigger, there are certain tools that you can use, like the 10-minute rule, et cetera, that you can use to deal with uh, the internal trigger. There's over a dozen different techniques you can use. The second thing it could be is an external trigger, right? Something in your outside environment. The only third thing it could be is a planning problem. 
So that's about looking back at your schedule and figuring out, okay, how do I change my my schedule a bit? Uh, so knowing that those are the only three potential causes of every distraction, that distraction tracker allows you to figure out why you got distracted so you can do something about it. So the, the biggest difference between a distractible person and an indistractable person. It's not that an indistractable person never gets distracted. I, I made up the word indistractable. I can define it any way I want. So an indistractable person doesn't, it's not that you never get distracted. I still get distracted from time to time. The difference is I know why I got distracted, right? So an indistractable person strives to do what they say they're going to do. So Poela Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once mm. is a decision. So how many times can we continue to complain? Oh my God, it was uh, Facebook. Oh my gosh, it was YouTube. Oh my God, come on. <laughs> this is not the first time it happens. So if it happens once, it happens to me, right? Something distracts me for the first time. All right, you got me. But I'm not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen again because I know every distraction only has those three causes. I write them down on the distraction tracker and then I go back later on and say, okay, how can I make plans today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. So it doesn't keep happening again and again. Because again, if the same distractions keep happening, you are choosing to be distractible. Mm. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. That is a writer downer. Holy shit. That's a great, I love yeah, that. But one. I can't and take credit I, again. That's, I, I know, that, I didn't say that. I know <laughs> that that's great, but I, I, I have to zoom in on something that you said. So I want to get tactical here. Do you literally have like a 15 minute? How much time do you allot yourself for worrying? Because this is this is exciting here. So is this at the end yeah. of the day? Where do you have it structured? <laughs> Tell me about this making time to worry thing, because that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I have time in, in my day and and uh, it's a 30 minute block for all those. Oh, loose 30 ends. minutes. So if it's, OK. <laughs> yeah. And so if I'm writing, for example, and I think to myself, oh, there's that thing I need to do or oh, there's that problem I need to work on right now. What I used to do before I wrote this book was let me let me just go work on that for a quick second. Let me let me just go do a quick Google search on how to fix that, or, or let me just send a quick email. You know what happens, right? Your mind is completely distracted on something else. And then, oh, I've got three notifications in my inbox. So let me just take care of those real quick. And then before you know, 20, 30 minutes later, you're not doing the thing you said you were going to do with your time. So now what do I do? I have that, that post-it note I just showed you. I write it down and then get back to the task at hand. Now, here's the beauty of this. Okay, here's where the real magic happens. So much of that stuff that I think in the minute, oh, that's super important that I used to have to go do in that moment right now. Disappears. When I look back in my worry time, not that important. Right. <laughs> right. It didn't need any attention from me. So it's it's a, it's a double benefit that I that uh, if it's important, I know that time comes. One of the mistakes people make is if you don't plan that time, you're always thinking in your mind, when am I going to have time to think about it? When am I going to have time to work on it? As opposed to, I know I have time. Yep, it's in my schedule. Okay, it's coming. And I can get immediately back to the task at hand, the thing that requires my full focus and attention. Yeah, I love that. I'm, I'm going to share something of my notes of implementing this stuff. I find that authors tend to enjoy this kind of thing when I when I share this. So what I've noticed that I was really surprised is the emotion I found myself continuing to write on the distraction tracker was not what I thought it would be at all at hearing this. It was excitement. Um, because like what, what I, my tendency, and I'll, I'll use reading indistractable as an example. It's like, I knew you were coming on the show. I knew I wanted to read the book and I get excited about implementing stuff. And so it's like, you make a recommendation to start time boxing, which we'll get to in a little bit, or to, to use focus mate, which I, I use it a while ago, but now I'm using it again because of this. It's like all these things I get excited about. And then that is actually a rabbit hole. And that is, I think in my mind, a perfect example of 
like it seems like I'm working, like I'm continuing to actually read the the book and do, you know, prepare for my interview with Nier. But in reality, I'm actually chasing a rabbit hole that's not actually reading Indistractable. So right. it was just a surprising emotion for me to to come up in that. It wasn't anxiety or, or I just tend to get excited and chase rabbit holes of things that I want to implement. So it was just a, yeah. a, a cool insight for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that's probably so. So internal triggers are always negative. Oh, really? So okay. It, so I found yeah. a rose colored so, glasses way of getting my way around this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit of semantics. It's a bit of semantics, okay. right? It's two sides of the same coin. So on one hand, it's excitement. The other way to think about it is that it's fear of forgetting to implement mm. that technique. Mm, so there's sure. that fear component. But either way, it actually doesn't really matter, right? If you are doing the appropriate, the, the appropriate thing is, hey, I set an hour to prepare for the interview. I want to get through as much of uh, this book as, as possible in that hour. Uh, the wrong thing to do is, oh my God, that's such a great idea. Let me go do that real quick. And then you wasted 20, 30 minutes of that limited period of time, right? So you wouldn't get done. So you're doing exactly the right thing. You write it down, right? You put a post-it note somewhere that says, hey, go explore such and such. Nine times out of 10, uh, when you look back, you're like, okay, that, that's nice. But I, I didn't have to do it right then and there, right? Mm -hmm. I can do it later on. Yeah, that's been a huge thing for me is just kind of the difference between just-in-time information and just-in-case information. Because it's like, mm. I'm trying to get really good at like, implementing things that are super relevant. And I find that kind of like related to the strategy, if it's the heat of the moment, you feel like it's just in time information. It's super relevant because you just read it. But I think what you're alluding to is when you add that space and then you have that brain that's actually outside of the context that you were just in, you can actually decide whether it's relevant or not, <laughs> which is what you were saying right. about things immediately not becoming relevant. So yeah, amazing. Well, this has been uh, incredible so far. So, so far, just so you know, you listening, we've only covered the internal triggers for the most part so far, but you already have the 10 minute rule. You already have the distraction tracker. Those two things alone, you could end the interview, which you shouldn't, <laughs> but you could, and you could, you could take and make so much difference right now. I would love to talk about making time for traction and time boxing, sure. um, because yeah. I think this is such an important concept and I'll be honest, it may be a little bit uncomfortable initially when I was thinking about doing it. And then, so I'm, I'm trying experiments of doing this, but I think that you probably get that reaction all the time when people talk about this. So we'd love for you to yeah. share about time boxing, maybe some of the research behind that and how it works. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the most important first step is to master these internal triggers. And there's a dozen techniques just for mastering those internal triggers, right? The, the idea behind the book is not to give you tactics. It's about strategies, right? Tactics are what you do. Strategies are why you do it. So it's more important than saying, oh, you know, here's the latest gimmick or, you know, technique or software you can use. Everybody asks me, what's the tools? What's the tools? The tools are nice, but the tools come and go. What's more important is that you understand the psychology of distraction. You understand traction, distraction, internal triggers, external triggers. That's a much more important takeaway. And then you can find the tools that can work for you, right? And these are tools, not rules. We don't beat ourselves up over saying, oh, Nier said I can use this one technique, but it's not working for me. There's a dozen different techniques just in this one strategy of internal triggers. The idea here is that you have arrows in your quiver. The 10 minute rule doesn't work for you. Just try this other technique, right? We're going to reimagine the trigger, right? And there's uh, reimagining the trigger, reimagining your temperament, reimagining the task. There's all kinds of techniques over a dozen different techniques you can use just in that strategy section. The next step after we master our internal triggers, which again, mastering the internal triggers is the most important step. The second step is to make time for traction. Making time for traction acknowledges that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I'll say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if there's big empty white space in your calendar, what are you complaining about? <laughs> what did you get distracted from? So unless you're a child or retired, you need to plan every minute of your day. Sorry, that's life. <laughs> I hate to admit it. 
But this is the most important, most studied, most verified technique out there, which is called setting an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And I mean every minute of your day. Now, this sounds for some people who aren't in the practice of doing this, this sounds like a lot of work. This takes me 10 minutes a week. I'm not exaggerating. 10 minutes a week, Sunday night, 8 p.m. It's on my calendar. I look at <laughs> the week that just passed. Then I look at the week ahead and I try and make the week ahead easier to follow. And what I'm doing is essentially turning my values into time. Okay. If you want to know what someone's values really are, you look at two things. You look at how they spend their money and you look at how they spend their time. And I would argue that we have our, our priorities flipped. You know, people are so cheap when it comes to money, right? Uh, if an app costs 99 cents, they have to think about it, you know, whether it's worth it. Uh, <laughs> they split checks when they go out to lunch with their friends. They clip coupons. They save every penny. But we should be generous with our money, but stingy with our time. Why? Because time is a non-renewable resource. You can always make more money. You can always make more money, right? You can make infinite amount of money. You cannot make more time because whether you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, they also have 24 hours in a day, okay? So we should be stingy with our time, but generous with our money because we can always make more. So what that means is if you want to know what someone's values really are, you look at their schedule. The problem is most people don't make a schedule because they have this myth in their heads that, oh, if I make a schedule... Uh, well, then I can't be spontaneous. I can't be any fun. I What, what happens? And, and what they don't realize is that that is their subconscious mind tricking them and sabotaging them into not living the life they deserve. Every time you hear someone say, oh, that wouldn't work for me. My boss might need me. My kids might need me, blah, 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 blah. I've heard every excuse over the past 10 years. I've never been stumped with anybody's life about how why they can't plan. <laughs> Heart surgeons and firemen and uh, uh, IT workers and executives, they can all plan their day. Even if it's big swaths of time to be available, that's fine. You know, you can have time that you are on call. That's totally fine. But if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. And so you plan your day based on your value. So I give people these three life domains of you, you're at the center of these three life domains, then your relationships, and finally your work. And so what you have to do is to start with a blank week and you ask yourself, how would the person I want to become spend their time taking care of themselves, right? If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of other people, you can't make the world a better place. So what might that include? Okay, if physical fitness is one of your values, health, everybody says, oh, what's the most important thing? Oh, you gotta, gotta be healthy. Health, health is very, very important. You gotta take care of yourself. Well, do you have time in your day for exercise, for proper sleep? Do you have a bedtime, right? My, my daughter called me out when I used to tell her, you know, you have to go to bed, you have to have a bedtime. She said, daddy, do you have a bedtime? And she was right. I was a hypocrite. I didn't have a bedtime. Now I have a bedtime, <laughs> right? Uh, time for uh, reading, right? Is, is one of your values someone who continues to learn and grow? Well, do you have time in your day to read? Whatever it is, it could be time for video games, time for Netflix. I don't care. That's all fine. But put that time in your schedule in, in advance. Okay. That's the you domain. The next life domain is your relationships. Part of the reason we have a loneliness epidemic in the industrialized world is that as we became more secular, and I'm pretty secular myself, but I recognize that the institutions that we used to have that bound us together in time and place have, have decreased. Right. And this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, Robert Putnam was talking about this in the 1980s in his book, or 1990s in his book, Bowling Alone, that as civil society became more secular, there wasn't the church group, there wasn't the Kiwanis Club, there isn't the, 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 the organizations that people used to get together to see people who care for them and that they care for. 
we need to bring that back. It doesn't necessarily have to be in religious institutions, but you need to plan time, not only with your spouse, right? How many of us give scraps of time le- that are left over to our family, right? I think that's an incredibly big mistake. If you look at why marriages disintegrate, a large part of it is that people don't invest the time on their schedule to make time for each other. Put that time in your schedule with your kids, with your spouse, with your siblings, with your parents. Make that time to call, to be connected with those important people in your life. And don't forget to make time for your friends, okay? Have that time scheduled, especially men out there. You know, we we kind of think, oh, you know, if we haven't talked, well, maybe we're not that close of friends. And so these relationships, these most important friendships in our life from college, from school, they kind of just starve to death, right? That's how friendships die, particularly with men. They're not broken. You know, friendships don't end because somebody says, oh, you're a jerk. I don't like you. That almost never happens. What happens is they starve to death because we don't put in the time. That's the oxygen for our relationships. So make that time, put it in your schedule. For example, for my best friends from college, I I called them up as I was writing and distracting. I said, look, I, I really value our relationship. I can feel that we just don't have that time we used to. Let's put it in our schedules right now. Okay, so every third Tuesday of the month, that's my time with Travis, right? That time's in the schedule. I actually had a call with him today. Uh, and then and then every third Thursday, okay, that's gonna be my time with Jeff. And we have that time in the calendar. Now we don't have to play this email ping pong game trying to find time to talk to each other. It's in the schedule. So do that with the relationships in your life. Then finally, the work domain. The work domain, work can be split into two kinds of work. We have what's called reactive work and we have reflective work. Most people's most days, their day is full of reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to emails, reacting to requests. That is part of everybody's day, okay? It it, it has to be. The problem is that people can get habituated to only doing reactive work. Why? Because thinking, strategizing, planning takes work. And so what do we do? The brain we know is a cognitive miser. It looks for the path of least resistance. And so what do we do? We say, okay, I don't know what to do right now. I don't really want to think about it because that takes hard work. Eh, Let me just go check my email inbox. My email inbox will tell me what's important in my life, (laughs) right? That's a huge mistake because if you don't make time for that reflective work time, that time to sit and think, to create, to work without distraction, I promise you, you are going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So you have to make that time for not only reactive work time, but also for reflective work time so that you have this time box schedule. Now you will have an artifact that not only will be incredibly valuable to you because you can finally tell the difference between traction, what you said you were going to do, and everything else. That's all distraction. Anything that's not on that schedule is distraction, but you will also be able to share this tool with others. And that's where it becomes incredibly effective. I talk to a lot of people at companies that say, okay, great, Nir, I'm indistractable, but my boss keeps bothering me, right? What do I do then? Or my spouse is not pulling their weight. What do I do then, right? How how can I be indistractable if they won't be indistractable? Well, the beauty of it is when you have a physical artifact of your calendar, now you can do what's called schedule syncing. You can sit down with your boss for 10 minutes a week and share that schedule. And this gets you out of what I think is the worst piece of personal productivity advice, and you've heard it ad nauseum, the worst piece of productivity advice out there is, if you want to make sure you do your work, if you want to make sure you're more productive, you need to learn how to say no. No. That is the kind of advice that only a tenure professor would give, somebody who hasn't actually worked a real (laughs) job, because I promise you, I've run two companies and sold them. If my employees told me no, they're fired, right? <laughs> you do not want to tell your boss no. That's ridiculous, right? You don't tell your boss no. You tell your boss, look, here's my schedule, okay? Here's my nine to five. Here's the time that I, I will be at work. Here's what I plan to do. Here's that meeting you asked me to go to. Here's that project I'm working on. Now, 
here, boss, you see this other list? Okay, this piece of paper? Here's where I wrote down all the stuff you've asked me to do that I'm having trouble fitting into my calendar. Will you help me prioritize? Not no, will you help me prioritize? And what will happen is if you show them that time box calendar and this list of stuff that you couldn't figure out where to put in that calendar, they will invariably say, you know what? That task on that list, that's actually way more important that, than that meeting. I'd really like you to work on that instead. And they will worship the ground you walk on because I'm telling you, as a, a two-time CEO, bosses are desperate to know what the hell you're doing all day. We just don't want to ask you because we don't want you to feel like you're being micromanaged. So yeah. manage your manager, right? You do that by doing this schedule sync process. I do this with my wife as well, by the way. It's amazing. We've been married for 22 years. Incredible how much it's improved our, our relationship as well. I love that. Well, that is a masterclass right there. I want to I want to zoom in on one component of this. And then there's a, a really fun question I want to get to about, about how you crafted Indistractable. We'll see if we can get to that. But one of the biggest things that I've heard over and over and over again, but I still have not found a concrete way to make sure I'm continuing to do it is making sure that I'm measuring the the inputs, not the outcomes. It's a whole chapter of your yeah. book. And this is directly yeah. related to time boxing. And I think kind of how you juxtapose or how you would juxtapose the concept of time boxing versus using a to-do list is like, if you're tr like trying to check things off all the time, you're measuring the outcomes versus controlling the only thing that can be controlled, which is like how much time you put into it. So we'd love for you to maybe highlight that a little bit, because I think that's really relevant for this. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is exactly why the uh, the, the to do list is so antiquated. Uh, it's not that th getting things out of your brain and putting them on a to do list is a bad thing. That's a very good thing. The problem is people stop there, <laughs> right? They wake up in the morning and say, what am I supposed to do with my time? I don't know. Let me look at my to do list. And they start doing what do they do? Do they do the hard and important work? No, they do the easy stuff, right? They do the stuff that makes them feel good. Oh, look how productive I'm being. I get to check all off all these little boxes. And that's stupid <laughs> because <laughs> it has nothing to do with what's really important because you haven't sat down and figured out what's really important. And the only way to do that is to put those tasks, those things that you need to work on into a time box calendar because a to-do list is endless. There's no constraint. You can and but, but endless amount of items. And so what happens is you get home from work, you've been running ragged, you come home and then you look at this to-do list and there's all this stuff on there that you didn't finish. So what does that do to your psyche if day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you have this list of things that you said you would do that you didn't do, loser. And so that's where you start hearing people say these silly things like, oh, I'm no good at time management or whatever. It's not that they're no good. They're not broken. This stupid to-do list is broken, right? Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is, is make sure that you turn the input that that's what's more important. The, the to-do list is a register of output. It's the things you want to have done. But you can't have in output without input. So if you go to the the baker, right? You said, hey, my kid has a birthday party. I need 12 cupcakes. Well, the baker's going to take a second and say, okay, well, I need butter. I need sugar. I need flour. I need all this input, these ingredients in order to make the output. As knowledge workers, what's our input? It's not sugar and flour and butter. Our input is two things, our time and our attention. But people use these stupid to-do lists as a register of output without ever saying, what is the input? Where does the time and the attention come from? And that's the big mistake that we make. So the solution to that is get the task out of your head. Fantastic, get them out of your head, but then make sure to immediately put them in your schedule. Have that time where you're going to put, put those uh, that task in your schedule. Now, the big mind shift from people like me who used to use a to-do list and no longer do, the big time shift comes because 
people have been habituated to measuring themselves, measuring their self-worth even, by how many cute little boxes they check off. And I'm telling you that it doesn't matter what you finish, okay? This is gonna blow people's minds. It doesn't matter what you finish. It's not about measuring how many cute little boxes you check off. The only metric you should measure is did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? That's it. Did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Why? Because it turns out that people who use this methodology, people who use this time boxing technique that I described in Indistractable and measure themselves simply by that metric of did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction, they get more done. They actually finish more than the to-do list people. Why does that happen? Because when you work on a task without distraction, now you have a feedback loop. You can say, okay, I said in my calendar, I was gonna work on that slide presentation for 30 minutes. And okay, in 30 minutes, I finished two slides and the slide presentation needs to be 30 minutes long. Okay, well, that means I need a, another 15 time blocks of 30 minutes to finish the entire project. What happens to a to-do list person like I used to be, okay, I need to work on this slide presentation. Let me work on it for five minutes. Oh, you know what? There's that email that just came in and look, somebody's talking about something on Slack and oh, I need to Google that one thing. And then after five minutes, we're off doing a hundred different things. And it turns out this is where you get the planning fallacy from. We know from studies that it takes people three times longer to finish a task than they estimate. Why are we so bad at estimating how long things take us? Because the stupid to-do list doesn't give us <laughs> feedback. It's <laughs> only when we put things on our calendar and we can say, okay, unit of time, the input equaled how much output. Is there any other way? There's no other way. We have to start making these time boxes calendars. It's it's absolutely essential. I'm going to re-engineer everything, my entire structured system, because I, I have implementation intentions. I have the three things I want to get done during the day. I set it and I track it. And I but, but you're right, like being able to measure the inputs and only measuring that that component of are, did you do what you say you're going to do without distraction is super, super powerful. So guys, just for you listening, we've barely scratched the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the magic that is inside indistractable. So if you want to learn Nier's tricks for how to hack back those external triggers, the, the pings, the dings, the rings, as Nier was saying earlier before, if you want to figure out how you can actually create indistractable children and relationships, which to me was actually some of my favorite chapters. And my wife and I are going to be reading that together. Um, there's so much gold in there. So obviously everybody go check out indistractable. There's one thing I wanted to ask Nier that's not necessarily related, but I think it's super powerful. And one thing I've observed in reading your work is your intentionality with you have a level of intentionality with your thought leadership that I wanted to really ask because it's like you you have lots of concepts that are minimally counterintuitive. You know, we talked about like time management is pain management, um, how sh you shattering myths like to-do lists. You also have like monikers and identity things that you're creating with Indistractable of like giving people a label and identity to say they're Indistractable. So as somebody that has written Hooked and Indistractable that have both done very, very well, I was curious if you can maybe think of, uh, share a little bit about some of your thought process about creating sticky thought leadership because you've talked about sticky habit forming products. What are some of the ways that you think yeah. about creating sticky thought leadership? <laughs> well, I really appreciate that. I, 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 uh, yeah, it means a lot to me that you said that because I fundamentally am writing for myself. <laughs> so I, I read a lot of nonfiction books and, uh, you know, the, the, the joke among nonfiction authors is research is me search. 
that uh, we're researching this stuff because we have problems, right? And I, I sure. only write books. I don't write books uh, that someone else has already written. What, what's the point? And most of the problems I have in my life, you know, I'll journal about it. I'll, maybe I'll talk to my wife about it. Uh, maybe I'll escalate from there. If I still haven't found the solution, maybe I'll talk to a few friends or experts. And then I'll read all the books I can on the topic. And look, 99% of the time, the, the, the solution's out there, right? But every once in a while, I'll approach a topic and I'll read books on the topic and it won't fix the problem. And so that's when I have to start at square one. That's when I really have to go uh, to fundamentals to figure out how this, how uh, the nature of this problem. That's what I had to do with both my books. I did, couldn't find a book on how to build habit forming products. I read a bunch of books on how to fight distraction and none of them fixed the problem for me. So I really had to start from first principles. And so to me, one of the elements in my books uh, it, so I'm dyslexic. I read very, very slowly and I just hate fluffy books, right? Like I don't want to hear <laughs> stupid descriptions that are, you know, 14 pages about, uh, the temperature of the room and, you know, the, the scientist's hairdo, like, I don't, I don't give a shit. Like, tell me what to do. So every one of my chapters has what I wish I had in every nonfiction book. And I've, I've only seen a couple of nonfiction authors do this, which is at the end of every single chapter, you, you've you read it so you can verify, it says, do this now. Right. <laughs> right? It says, here is what you need to do, right? So even if you skip to the end of the chapter, there should be actionable steps. Now, the reason I do that is that I hold myself accountable. A lot of nonfiction books that I read, if you were to summarize the, the, the chapter, sometimes the whole book, it's like three bullet points. I hate that. <laughs> and a lot of authors won't do that because when they actually try and summarize, uh, they're like, it oh, doesn't well, look sexy. Kind of... <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not that interesting. I wanted to make sure that every bullet point that I put into that chapter is something that was surprising. At least to me, it has to be surprising. And hmm. so it has to be novel. It has to be something that people haven't heard to death, right? If I heard, hear the marshmallow study another time, I'm going to, I'm going to scream, right? Like, okay, <laughs> we've heard these studies enough. There have to be novel, <laughs> novel insights and novel techniques. And so that's why I put that because that's what fundamentally I would want. The second thing to me, um, I, I remember, you know, a few times in my life where someone presented a concept with a visual aid. And I remember how easy it is to transfer that idea to others. So I don't really care if people buy the book. What really would be meaningful to me is if people show each other this model. Like if people could mm. take a, 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 a Sharpie and draw out, hey, look, check this mm. out. I, I heard about this thing, traction, distraction, internal triggers, external triggers. Wow, isn't that cool? That if that can live on, that would be awesome. <laughs> so so to me, if, if the idea can't be simplified enough to be shareable, and then it can't be practical. Doesn't mean it's simplistic, right? It was really hard to draw the, to draw that picture actually took me more time than writing the book, right? Figuring out the fundamental elements, what goes in, what goes out. That took me way more time than actually writing the text. Um, but but that that's, I think, my, my bigger contribution. Because again, I don't know if that's good or bad. That's just the kind of book I would want to read. Heck yes. And uh, I can tell you hate fluffy books because your books are far from far from fluffy. So uh would highly <laughs> recommend everybody go grab your copy of Indistractable and Hooked. They've, they've changed my life in many ways. So I'm really, really excited for you guys to go check that out. And I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up because I know you're, you're uh, have another meeting in just a few minutes here. So I'm just going to have a conversation with you listening right now. And I could say, you could be listening to so many other podcasts. You could be doing so many other things. You could be distracted by so many other things, but you chose to spend this time with Nir and myself today. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. And I love podcasts because they've changed my life. And there is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely something in here that can change your life, whether that is simply writing down those distractions instead of succumbing to them, the 10 minute rule or uh, time boxing. Like these are things that can transform your presence, the way that you show up in the world. And so my ask is that if you've been impacted by something today, you just take a second to share because it will, it will make a difference. Whether 
whether you hear back from them or not. And so uh, whether you do that for, or, or not, I appreciate you so much for being here. And uh, Nir, any final things you want to actually, where can people find out about you and, and the stuff that you do outside of your books? And then and then anything else you want to say before we head off today? Sure, absolutely. So uh, my website is nearandfar.com. And if you go to indistractable.com, there's actually an 80 page workbook. We couldn't fit into the final edition of the book. So we decided to give it away complimentary, you know, no strings attached. You can go to indistractable.com and download that 80 page workbook, which will guide you on your path to becoming indistractable. Great. Love that. And uh, I'll put a final hook in there for you to grab it. Uh, We didn't get a chance to discover what your daughter's intended superpower was or desired superpower. So I guess you're going to have to read Indistractable and read through to the very end to find (laughs) out what that is, because it's a great, great answer. So Nir, I appreciate you so much for being here. This has been a blast and we'll talk to you soon, my friend.